BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello there ladies and gentlemen and welcome to a very special episode of This Week in History with me your host Dan the Viking. Uh, this week we are joined by two fantastic historians who I'm guessing you may have heard of. These gentlemen are in the process of bringing out a new book. Their new book is called The Nazi Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin and Churchill. And this is a fantastic book. I've read it myself. We are joined this week by Josh Mensch and Brad Meltzer. Now, Brad Meltzer is the number one New York Times best-selling author of The Lightning Rod, The Escape Artist, and over ten other best-selling thrillers, as well as the Ordinary People Change the World series. He is also the host of the History Channel's TV shows Brad Meltzer's Decoded and Brad Meltzer's Lost in History, which he used to help find the missing 9-11 flag that the firefighters raised at Ground Zero. He is a fantastic historian and a very, very famous one, very highly praised, and I am so happy to have him on the show. Josh Mensch is his co-author. He's also the co-author of three critically acclaimed books about the American history, the New York Times number two non-fiction bestseller, The First Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington, the New York Times sixth non-fiction bestseller, the Lincoln Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill America's 16th President, and Why It Failed. Uh, in addition to writing books, Josh has been in the documentary TV series Showrunner. He's been a writer, a director, a producer. Um, he has a wide variety of historical, culture, and journalistic programming for non-fiction network, including the History Channel, PBS, National Geographic, Discovery, and many more as well. I am so happy to have you guys on the show. Thank you very much for, for joining me. Welcome to the show. Uh, welcome to This Week in History. Um, obviously, a lot of my listeners have heard of you guys. Um, a lot of my listeners are actually excited about this. 
Um, I have been plugging this for a few weeks because uh, as soon as I was contacted by you guys, it was um, a massive thing. I was like, oh, my God. You know, for me, as um, I would say an amateur historian, you know, um, obviously I've got my degree, but um, as an amateur historian, someone who's come into this to actually be recognised as, you know, from by two of, you know, very famous, as far as I'm concerned, very famous historians is is fantastic. So I, I'm really excited to have you guys on the show. Well, well we're so excited much. to be here. Yeah, for sure. And plus, you have the accent, which automatically makes you sound smarter than <laughs> us. So don't worry. Yeah, well, you, you might not think that by the end of the show, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Um, so obviously, you know, you guys are here to to talk about your, your new book, um, which I have a copy of. I have read. Um, I believe I'm on the second time of reading it now and probably the second time of listening to it on the audio book as well because um, there's so much detail in there. I mean, it's it's stuff I've never heard of. Um, and it's amazing that you've you found this sort of conspiracy that, you know, let's be honest, majority of people probably don't know exists. So how, how did you find it? Yeah, you know, I actually found it on a... Some things good actually come from the internet. And uh, I found some online article. It was pretty short. And it was really just like a page long uh, that just mentioned it. And I remember going, you know, is this real? Is this nonsense? Is this, you know, what is it? I remember sending it to Josh and being like, what do you think of this? And he was like, well, let's look into it. Um, but, you know, these things, as as all good parts of history are, they're, they're just rabbit holes. And, and if they catch your passion, then you kind of jump down it and then you see where it leads. And I don't think either of us thought we were going to find something as not just interesting, but as complicated as, as this whole story is. And, and I think it just was, um, you know, one of those things where I don't think much good comes out of the Internet, but this was certainly one of them. Yeah, no, I'm 100 percent with you on that. I, I'm not a fan of the Internet, to be honest. Um, but no, I mean, it, it's it's amazing how you did sort of jump down the rabbit hole and and the story comes across um if you don't mind me saying but to me when i was reading it, it came across as like a like um like a crime thriller you know almost like a spy novel um it was it was gripping just couldn't put the book down it, it's fantastic the way it's written and you know congratulations you guys i mean it's it's really 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 well written um but th there's parts of it that you sort of think did that really happen and in you know, there's there's so much to digest on it. And um, obviously you do deep dives into things. And do you think it's going to change the way we look at that part of history? Well, uh, who knows? Um, I mean, uh, you know, just to sort of echo what Brad was saying, uh, one of the hardest things about the story was that the first thing you do when you start researching it is you find all kinds of conflicting information, uh, mm. lots of different theories. Uh, a lot of misinformation, rumors, speculation, you name it. Um, and so part of the challenge and part of the fun was to try to dig in and, and, and separate, um, you know, uh, what's real and what's not and what's plausible and what's not plausible. And um, it was it was like a detective search, figuring out the story um, and then putting it together in a way that would be, uh, you know, make sense to readers was also very challenging. Um, but as you say, it kind of opens up some doors that maybe you don't open too often when you're studying World War II. And, and we found these sort of nooks and crannies, um, not just the rather, you know, spectacular main story of, of, of the of the potential assassination plot, but lots of other little air parts of the war that that, you know, we kind of 
shine a light on that that maybe don't get talked about so often. So it was it was truly a, a fascinating journey. Absolutely. I mean, um, one of my my favorite parts of the, of the story is how you, um, you you sort of traveled back to the original plot. I mean, Tehran was such a, a, a random place to, to have the war. You know, it was so well fought over. It went from hand to hand, um, from allies to Nazis hands. And the the way it's set out, I mean, the way you go through the history and the stages of the war is, is fantastic. I mean, um, one of my favorite events and being British is very strange, but one of my favorite events in the Second World War is that of Pearl Harbor. Um, and obviously you guys really go into detail on that. And that I, I absolutely love that because that's, uh, that's one of my favorite um, parts of the war. Yeah, and I appreciate that. I, I think one of the things that we loved was, was you know, I, let's just paint the picture also for listeners out there, right? We start with, uh, with a presidential limo going down the streets of Tehran and, you know, it's right down the center of the city and everyone's all lined up because they want to see the president of the United States because, man, he's in Iran. And everyone's waving and craning their necks and there's a guy in the, in, in the presidential limo waving, but that guy is not the president of the United States. It's a decoy. Yeah. The real president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, is in a dirty, beat-up sedan on the outskirts of the city racing through the side streets following a jeep because he's on the run ducked down in the back and hiding because they're worried that there's a plot to kill him and as he races to basically the british and the equivalent of the british and, and russian embassy i just ruined chapter one of the nazi conspiracy <laughs> for you um but that's the opening of it and as you said we go from there to pearl harbor but you get to see pearl Har you know I, I one of the things i love and full credit to Josh for doing it because that, that scene was absolutely that. I mean, I loved it. I was as surprised as you were when I first read it. Is he did it from the perspective of you're reading through and you, everyone's going in the air and you could see the date, you know, you can see December 7th, you can see all the things, and you're like, oh, here's Pearl Harbor. And we all know those things so well, they become almost tropes of World War II. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you realize we're reading it and it's from the Japanese perspective. And yeah. who you think you're rooting for the guys who are scrambling to the planes to go in the middle of the night and you realize, no, this is the Japanese and this is how they're pulling it off. And it just takes that trope that we all know so well and turns it on its head. And, and to me, that's the fun because what World War II sadly becomes is we, we eventually, as historians, as, as you know, casual historians, as whatever you want to call it, but we just get used to the same story being told. You know, here's Pearl Harbor. Here's what Winston Churchill says. Here's what FDR does. We fight the Nazis. The bad guys are done. And it's so much more complex than that. And it's so much more nuanced on that. And Churchill has great moments and terrible moments. And FDR has great yeah. moments and terrible moments. And I love that we get to show you the war in that kind of, I think, much more complicated, but much more nuanced view. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, to I totally agree with that. And um, I mean, my my biggest, the reason I love Pearl, Pearl Harbor is... Uh, I always say it was the day that the world woke up um, because America, I believe at that time was the 17th largest Navy in the world. Uh, I believe even Portugal had a bigger army than America. Um, they somewhere between Portugal and uh, Belarus or somewhere like that, um, you know, for grand scheme of things. And then to look, you know, not even 20 years ahead and America is the powerhouse that, that we know. And it, it I always wonder, had they not have done that, would America have still gone down 
the route that it did um, with the the building of arms. It's um, I think there's so many what if moments in history, um, and especially with this. I mean, this story. I mean, we'll get to that a little bit later because I, I am going to ask you the what if question at the end. But um, with your research, what was the the biggest thing that stood out? The the most surprising thing that you sort of thought, wow, I had no idea that happened. You want to start with that, Brad? Yeah, I mean, I can go. I, I, I was taking turns, so you can go, but I'm happy to go too. whatever you want. We can both. Um, let's both. Let's both answer it. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, the most surprising. Well, as you pointed out, you know, we, we talk about Iran's role in the war. And it's just a reminder that every country, almost every country in the world was deeply affected by this war. Um, you know, not just the main players. It, it touched everywhere and everyone. And it was definitely interesting to delve into the sort of history of that region. And as you said, uh, Iran sort of changed hands a few times based on the geopolitics and based on this, you know, very important railroad. Uh, so that was certainly a, a fun little thing to learn about. Um, and also it was interesting to learn about the, the dueling spy systems. Um, we learned quite a bit about, you know, the Nazi, the structure of Nazi intelligence and it's Nazi intelligence that, that ultimately you know, sniff out um, this summit in Tehran that we talk about, uh, but learning a bit more about how the uh, spy systems competed with each other was also a, a really interesting, really interesting part of telling the story. Yeah, and I yeah. think for me, for me, um, I think there are two things that stood out. One was just the, the Nazis always are the standout. They just are. And, and the story of Otto Skorzeny uh, who, you know, is called to the wolf's, you know, lair. It's, it's obviously Hitler's private headquarters and he lines up all of his special operations guys and he's looking, they're all lined up in a room and Hitler asks the question, what do you think of Italy? And they're all immediately start spouting answers that, no, Italy's, you know, they're, they're part of the Axis powers. They're our ally here. Uh, and one guy yells out above everyone else, not even waiting for his turn and says, I am Austria. And, my Fuhrer. And it's Otto Skorzeny. And Otto's taken a gamble in this moment because he knows that Hitler's Austrian and he knows that real Austrians uh, forever have a, uh, a level of, of, and I don't want to say hatred, but have a level of, of uh, some, something that's uh, close to it. Because at the end of World War I and the Treaty of Versailles, Austria lost a piece uh, of itself to Italy and everyone, you know, from Austria kind of forever you know, has a little bit of animosity for that. And it's a gamble, right? And, and yeah. Hitler kind of looks over and basically says, you know, I, I, this is my guy, right? He understands this guy's like me. And right there, Hitler has his man for, I won't ruin it, but when you read the Nazi conspiracy, it's one of the craziest secret missions you'll ever see. And oh. I think that story was forever. Like you can't forget it. Like my son, was reading the book the other day and he's 21 years old and he doesn't care about anything I do. And he's like, dad, this scene without a scores. And I'm like, I know he's like, this is real. I'm like, yes. He's like, it's, I'm like, I know. And so that, I, that was the one that shocked me and I just loved and And I think the bigger picture for me, this is just as an American is, you know, in America, we we're a country founded on stories and we love the stories, especially that make us look good. And so oh, yeah. we always we always see through that lens. And I think what really struck me is when you look at the destruction that was happening in the Soviet Union when the Nazis invaded. I mean, to take nothing away from the United Kingdom or from the United States, 
But the United States lost, I think it was 419,000 people in the war. The United Kingdom lost like 451,000 people in the war. And the, the Soviet Union lost 24 million people. And I don't think, you know, in, in the time, at least in the United States of the Cold War, we didn't like telling stories where the Russians were the good guys. And, and I think we kind of swept a little bit of that under our historical rugs unfairly. And it's staggering to me to see that level of destruction up close. Oh, I'm 100% with you on that. I mean, that's, uh, I, I get a lot of um, stories. Obviously, majority of my listeners are, are American. Um, like I said earlier, that might have something to do with the accent. But um, we have a lot of Americans. And I do get questioned quite a lot of, why do you always come at things from a British point of view? I mean, we've done um, many things uh, on, on the podcast. I don't know if you've ever listened, but we've covered a lot of things. And, and I do come to things from a very British point of view. And one of the things I'm always asked is, is why do Britain not recognise America in their help in the Second World War? Um, and I always say it's not that we don't recognise it. It's something to do with the fact that we see the fact that Russia played such a big part and had it not have been for Hitler's Operation Barbarossa, he would have absolutely wiped the United Kingdom out, I believe, before America had even entered the war. Um, and I think that was that's where the British tend to look, is the fact that Hitler made that mistake to turn his ally into his enemy. And that's something that I think we still have that problem with Russia today. Um, I think that's something that, I mean, obviously the war in Ukraine doesn't help, but I do believe that Russia has always been seen as as the enemy, regardless of whether we're at war and they're on our side, like the First and Second World War. I mean, people forget that Russia was on our side in the First World War as well. Um, but now they're just, they're seen as the enemy. And I always find that a bit strange that Russia is looked upon in such a negative view. Yeah. And, and listen, it's just, that's what happens. That's what the Cold War does is you don't want to make your enemy look good. No, absolutely. I mean, do you, do you think that um, sort of the, the, the opinion of Russia has shifted um, since the Second World War or, or since the Cold War? Do you think the war in Ukraine, I know obviously that's modern history, but do you feel that that war has probably just cemented people's hatred towards the country? Listen, well, when we go ahead, Josh. Sorry. I was going to say, you know, one 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 sort of tragic irony um, uh, is that there are some aspects of of the invasion of Ukraine that, sadly, tragically, have echoes of the Nazi Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, um, and that just feels like such a historical tragedy that that this country that defended itself so magnificently um, uh, against Nazi Germany. Uh, you know, and, and Nazi Germany was such an aggressor, uh, is now in a position of being the aggressor. And, uh, you know, th there was a similar aspect to it where Nazi Germany was convinced it would just roll over the Soviet Union in a matter of months. And at first it looked like they would. Um, and again, in, 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 uh, today, uh, uh, earlier this year or last year, you know, Russia thought it would just immediately dominate uh, Ukraine. And yeah, in both cases, that's not Josh. what happened. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, the bigger power, you you just assume 
they're going to steamroller. And uh, I mean, we had a little bit of a, a thing in this country when once it got past the first month, um, everyone in this country was proud of Ukraine because they outlasted France in a war, um, which was quite uh, an ironic thing in this country because there's obviously that rivalry between Britain and France. Um, but obviously you can't really joke about war, but you've got to try and put a bit of a, a light spin on things. It's, it's a, a tragedy what's going on over there. Um, but obviously we're taking away from your book here. So uh, we'll get we'll get back onto that. Um, is there a part of it, part of your book that you believe that the readers will enjoy? Because obviously you had your own personal part that you know you believe is is your favorite bit um is there a part of it we think the readers will will really resonate to uh well i think uh what brad already mentioned this absolutely spectacular uh mission um uh, by this uh german special forces um officer named otto scorzani involving uh we won't say exactly what it was but involving nope. Uh, Mussolini is just absolutely extraordinary. It's out of an action movie. Um, uh, but I also think, you know, uh, sort of on a different note, that the the relationship between FDR and Churchill is totally fascinating and often very entertaining. And then their relationship, the three-way relationship between Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin is also really fascinating. And it's it's just sort of geopolitics at the highest level and, and reading these, the letters between these three world leaders when the world, you know, the future of the world was at stake and the decision-making, uh, it, it's just really interesting to, to read the back and forth between those leaders. Yeah, I, I must admit, one of my, uh, my favorite parts of the book, and I don't want to give uh, too much away, but one of my favorite parts is where Winston Churchill is absolutely blindsided by FDR. Um, and you'll you guys will know exactly what I'm on about. Um, and I'm reading that and I'm thinking, wow, did he, you know, that to me, that showed a little bit of balls to say for, from the American president to, to do something like that. And then Churchill's reaction to just sort of go, well, no, okay, well, that's not what we spoke about, but we'll, we'll get on with it. You know, that's what you said. That's what we'll do. Um, and it just shows their sort of unity as a together. I was struck by FDR, his his real ability to just think he's the guy for the job. Like he has no lack of faith in his own ability to be on the charm offensive, whether he's trying to charm Churchill or whether he's trying to charm, charm Stalin. And, and, you know, there's a saying for, and I, they say it about U.S. presidents, but I think it's about all world leaders is, you know, it's not about whether they can give the best speech or whether they ran on the best position or whether they're, you know, the best looking or they have the best ideas or even the best platforms that they're elected on. What makes a great leader is when a disaster happens, a really great disaster happens, can they adapt to that moment? And that's where great leaders, the best leaders are born. And, and it's, it's staggering to me to watch. And Churchill, I can say that about Churchill too, but you know, FDR's ability to just be like, I got this, you know, I know Stalin hates you, but man, he's going to love me. And that is, you know, never lost on me. The, the balls is the exact right way to describe it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and he was the right man for the job. Let's, let's you know, not sugarcoat it. He was, he was the man that pulled the world together to, to fight one of the most evil powers we've ever seen in, in history. Um, 
it, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating story, the, the camaraderie between the two. And I find it very interesting that um, Churchill was left out of quite a few things that, um, you know, for, for, again, I don't want to give too much away because, you know, the, the, the point of this is for people to go and read it themselves. And um, But the fact that Churchill was left out of certain things that FDR kept very close to his chest... Um, I find that strange because we see in this country, um, not all of us, we have a, a certain contingency that are anti Winston Churchill, but um, we have this sort of feeling that Winston Churchill was the man that won us the war, um, but he didn't do it on his own. And I think we forget that. And, and Britain has this very much, um, that's the best way to describe it, like a pride we, we know we have this British pride that we are the top dogs and we are the best and, you know, everyone is is underneath us. And I think when you actually look at the bigger picture and you look at uh, FDR and his role in, in the Second World War, I, I, it's almost impossible to believe that we could have won it without them. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, as we were saying earlier, uh, as Brad was saying earlier, uh, neither uh, the United Kingdom nor the United States could possibly uh, have prevailed without the just absolute strength and stamina of the Soviet Union. Um, and there's an, another incredible statistic, in addition to the casualties uh, and the number of deaths that Brad mentioned, uh, uh, there's something like, uh, I might be getting the exact number wrong, but something like nine out of every 10 Nazi soldiers that died in World War II was killed by uh, a Soviet soldier. It was that many. Um, wow. That's how much of the war was fought um, on Soviet soil. And so, um, you know, uh, Soviets did the majority of the ground fighting uh, without without England prevailing uh, in the skies early in the war. Uh, that could have been devastating. Um, and then the United States coming in at sort of just the right moment to uh, first send arms to uh, the Soviets and then to actually join the fighting um, uh, in Europe. It, it, it took everyone working together uh, to, to stand up to this, this evil power. And uh, it, there are a lot of ways it could have gone wrong, but, uh, but uh, the, these three leaders and several other countries too, uh, we're not even talking about the, the Pacific war, but just in Europe, mm. uh, it, it took an incredible uh, amount of coordination and teamwork to, uh, to, to win the war. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Pacific war is, is, you know, almost its own war, on its own. I know we obviously lumber it all in as, as World War II, but I mean, the Pacific War started two years earlier, 1937. Um, and again, people forget that during 1937, it was the Americans that were helping out the Chinese. Um, it was the Americans that were making that flight over there to, to constantly keep the Chinese um, fed with, with arms and supplies. But that war aside, obviously, in Britain, we, we tend to focus on, on Germany. We tend to focus on, on our fronts, um, mainly because Britain had very little to do with the Eastern War. Um, obviously, America tended to fight on both sides. You, you know, we had a few, I believe we had a few ships in the, the naval ships out there, but most of the fighting from Britain, Britain's point of view was done by India and, and Australia over there. So it's very interesting to think that when you you guys obviously you do quite a bit on the Pacific front and you you cover um, 
Nanking, the bombing of uh, Tokyo and things like that. Um, and it's, it's just fascinating how the book, obviously you read the title of the book and you've incorporated so much of the war that it's, it's just, like I said, it's a book you just can't put down. It's so interesting and there's so much going all the way through it um, that it just keeps you wanting to read the next page and the next page. It's, it's, very, it's very good like that. Um, I do have one quick question because I find it very interesting with, with history, um, the World War II and how the stories constantly keep coming out there's always something that people are fascinated about in World War II. And I mean, almost, I would say a lot of avid historians probably think they know everything about World War II, but why do we continue to be fascinated by the stories, do you think? I mean, I think, and again, since you said, I'll give you a quick answer. Um, I, I think that World War II is just one of those moments where it's so clear who the good guys are and it's so clear who the bad guys are. And it's one of those moments where the good guys win. And isn't it amazing, especially in America? I mean, again, I said before, we're, we're, we're a country founded on legends and myths and the legends and myths we love most in America are our own. And one of the things that we can say in this war is, you know, we got to watch the good guys do the right thing take on the bad guys and save the day. And how often can you say that about any government operation? So it just becomes the ultimate hero story. And I, and I do think that, you know, when we tell stories in, in our cultures, that we're not just trying to relay information. What we're trying to do is, is find something about ourselves. And in World War II, you get to, you get to have that moment where faced with the worst evil, that good will rise up and, and make sure that it, it goes no further. And, and that we, I firmly believe we want to believe about ourselves. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think the, the hero story is, you know, it's, it's embedded into to every society, isn't it? You know, we all want to, to believe that we're the good guys. And in this, like you said, in this situation, it's so clear who was the good guys and who was the bad guys. Um, yeah, it was, you always, we have this, innate need to to want to to learn about our heroes and and people I mean I, my great granddad um fought in in the second world war he actually fought out in Saudi Arabia um and he lived with the Arabs so I, if he was still alive I, I'd ask him so many questions about this book because he was probably in and around Tehran at this sort of time um I know he was in Iran um at some point but Obviously, he's not not here anymore. But I'd I'd wonder if the soldiers had any clue. You know, if there was any soldiers at, at the time, other than the ones, obviously the Nazis. But if any British, American, or or Russian soldiers had any intelligence onto this ever happening, this plot. Well, uh, I mean, it, the Americans learn about it. Uh, from the Soviets, uh, and and they learn about it um, again without giving too much away. You know, after it, it takes months and months and months and months and months to arrange this uh, first ever summit, this first ever in person meeting between FDR, Churchill, and Stalin. Uh, it, it it was a long time coming. It was incredibly complicated. They pick uh, Stalin insisted on uh, hosting it at the most inconvenient possible location for the other leaders in Tehran. Um, and the Americans, you know, it takes them 
almost two weeks to get there and they arrive and um and the first thing they hear is is uh you know the the soviet intelligence chiefs saying uh guys uh we just learned about uh a possible nazi plot and your president is in danger here in this city and we have to deal with this so uh, the Soviet intelligence was really the source of, of information on it. Uh, and now from there, some other folks learn about it. Some other folks have theories about it. The British end up having some theories about it. Uh, different people in the American system have theories about it. Uh, but it, it was initially um, the Soviet intelligence services that that first learned uh, that, that the Nazis were up to something. Hmm. Like I say, you, obviously, we don't want to give too much away. Um, I do have a, a, a question for you in regards to the word that is used in the in the title, um, the word conspiracy. Now, it uh, opens up many doors, this word nowadays. Um, I have friends who are massive into conspiracy theories. I am a big fan of them, uh, providing there is historical evidence behind it. Um, or real evidence behind it, as I like to say. Um, I mean, conspiracies, have they changed over the years? Uh, what are you, you know, do you get, a, I'm assuming you get quite a few emails regarding conspiracies, and especially seeing as that's your last, your last few books. Uh, do, do you have any wild ones that you could share with us? You know, uh, listen, you're, you're talking to a guy who not only, you know, not only do Josh and I write conspiracy books with that word in the title, but, you know, I hope Josh and I both worked on on TV shows. I worked on a conspiracy TV show, and, and I do think the word has shifted. I, in fact, we had a conversation with the publisher when we started writing these books. The word conspiracy didn't mean kooky crazy, but it's become that, sadly, right? Mm -hmm. Now, can, I, I hate, I don't want to sound trite and say, you know, conspiracies used to be fun and now they're bad. Um, but I come at it from your perspective. Like I'm a skeptic. And if you're going to say something crazy, you better have the evidence to back it up. And so often there's no evidence, you know, and shows and books that tell you that the government is out to get you in every single different way are not just wrong, but they're reckless, right? The government can barely handle a snow day. Um, yeah. you know, like the, for them to, you know, have hundreds of people keep their mouths shut with the greatest secret of all time mm. is just not knowing anything about human nature. And, and yes, the government sometimes lies and does bad things because the government's made up of us. That's what the government is. It's always us. And it, and it does those things for very simple reasons, for money and for power and for sex and for self-interest. Um, you know, but we don't want to hear that anymore. And I, and I think the reason... We don't like hearing that. Maybe this is the best way to say it is let's talk because you asked about, you know, any good theories out there. Let's just talk for a moment about JFK. And if you want to know who, who killed JFK in the 60s, when it happened, we said that it was the Cubans who did it. It was the communists who did it because we were at you know, the height of the Cold War, our great enemies in the Cold War. And if yeah. you go into the 70s and you want to know who killed JFK, this is the time of Watergate when there's mistrust for the government. So who killed JFK in the 70s? Well, we said it was an inside job. The CIA did it, right? LBJ did it. And then if you look in the 80s as the Godfather movies peak, who killed JFK? The, the mob killed him, right? The mafia killed him. And yeah. decade by decade, if you want to know who killed JFK, it's whoever America is most afraid of at that moment in time. And it's my way of saying that conspiracies are just mirrors, and you hold them up and you see what you're afraid of. 
And I, I like to think that what Josh and I are doing here is we're using the words as it's really intended, which is a group of people planning together. That's what a conspiracy actually means. It doesn't mean the craziest ass shit you can think up, right? Yeah. It, it means actually like a group of people plotting against them. That's what the Nazis are doing here. That's what's happening in the Nazi conspiracy. And I think it, we'd be better off if we, if we actually kind of deferred to the, to the one that has actual facts behind it rather than the one that just lets you, you know, say, say whatever you want. Yeah. I mean, you have, um, um, I, I would say a lot more in America, I believe. And that sounds probably a bit offensive. It's not meant to be, but um, from when we look at conspiracies and things like that, um, I did a, an episode a few weeks ago on the top conspiracy theories of all time. Um, and a lot of them are American based, you know, nine 11 is a big one that comes up all the time. Um, the moon landing comes up all the time. JFK comes up all the time. Um, a lot of them do seem to be sort of based in America. And I just wonder, is that, and it's going to, I don't want it to sound offensive. It's not meant to be, but is that the fact that Americans as a general rule, um, don't have a huge history so therefore try to come up with other things to sort of supplement that and um, I find from a lot of people who talk to me about my podcast they all get loads of emails and things saying oh Britain's Britain's history is amazing you know it's so good and I always say well yeah but if you hadn't fought us in 1776 you'd have the same history but you did so um, I just I just wonder is there is there a reason that a lot more conspiracies gravitate to America than the rest of the world? That's a fascinating question. Uh, and, you know, probably impossible to, to really know or really answer. Um, but a couple of thoughts just that come to mind off the top. One thing is it's a, you know, we're an incredibly diverse country, um, mm. a lot of different religious groups, um, uh, ethnic groups, uh, a lot of immigrant groups, uh, people from all over the world, a lot of different belief systems. And so just the sheer variety of points of view and, and ideas is just, it kind of creates a, an environment where a lot of different groups can come up with different ideas or different interpretations. Um, and so, you know, that's just one thought off the top of the head where maybe a culture that's a little bit more, um, you know, less varied, um, you know, might be less inclined for these wild theories to proliferate um, and another maybe thought is that in the United States in the 60s, we actually lived through so many, there was a period where so many crazy things happened. Uh, I mean, we've talked about the JFK assassination, but in one very short period, you had Martin Luther King assassinated, Robert Kennedy assassinated, JFK assassinated, Malcolm X assassinated. So it just felt like, you know, the world was falling apart and things were spinning off the wheels and the FBI was up to some genu genuinely really crazy stuff at that time. So I think that period in, in American history just created a feeling that maybe anything was possible and that, uh, and that you know, the truth was stranger than fiction. And so, you know, that led to just a long period where people are ready to believe in just about anything because uh, so many genuinely wild things did happen. Yeah. And one, one thing I would add to that, I think that's entirely right, Josh. And, and, it's funny, you, you've asked a question that Josh and I have never been asked, which is also pretty amazing. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, we but, actually but had to the, think a little. We, I know, we were a little like, we didn't know what to do. Um, but oh, and the one thing I'd add to that, because I think, I think Josh is entirely right. I, I think the thing that goes on top of what you said is 
that it's really, if you believe that there's, there's a reason, people believe things for a reason and they have needs to believe things. And the idea of believing that there's a grand government conspiracy is actually a way to reassure yourself of how the world works. Because if you, if you stop and think, again, let's just go to JFK for a moment. If you stop and think that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, then what comes out of that is the, is the very simple, the corollary of that is that on any given day, one lone person can disrupt your entire universe and way of life. And that is a profoundly scary thought. It is much easier and safer to believe that if you want to disrupt the universe, it's going to take a God level amount of people all plotted and planning together because it's really hard to disrupt the universe. So I don't think we realize how much of a safety blanket it is to believe in crazy stuff sometimes. That's yeah, that's absolutely spot on. I mean, um, that yeah, it's a fantastic answer. I mean, I always find it with the Lee Harvey Oswald um thing, I think the 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 reason people find the conspiracy so easy to fight but to to come up with um is the fact that he didn't even make it to trial you know he's shot in the hallway by jack ruby um i think that that to me when you had that not have happened the conspiracies may never have come out he could have stood there in court and went yeah i did it and that would have been the end of it but as soon as something like that happens you've got that that next step to feed everyone's imagination to well he was ruby obviously working for the government or he's working for the mafia and and so on and so forth so i find that i mean the jfk story is, is fascinating I, I i spent hours of research on that one it's um one of my favorite episodes that i did a few years ago um i mean conspiracies aside um why are we still fighting the nazis in general, you know, the, you see this all over the internet right now. I know you said you don't like the internet, but we see it all over the place. Um, far right extremists. I mean, I am British. I am proud British. I vote conservative. Um, I have my own thoughts, personalities, belief system. Um, and the way I believe certain things would now dictate me as far right. Um having come from a historical background and knowing what far right actually is, I actually find it quite insulting that someone who's conservative is now considered as far right. But I wonder, are we still fight? Are they Nazis still out there? Are, do they still exist? Um, or is it just the fact that we keep changing the definition of what far right is? I forget whose turn it is. <laughs> I truly forget. I think you both answered the last one, so. Okay, I, I spoke last. Josh, you go first. I, I again, this may be one of those ones that both of us are weighing on. Sure. I mean, I, I think you know whether you call something Nazism or you call a group a Nazi group today is less important than uh, you know. That's just a label at this point. It's 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 the impulse and uh, and the ideas behind it that are dangerous, and it's. You know, what, what we saw in the research for this book, and of course, what many other historians have studied is, is, is what led to the rise of, of Nazism and, and these certain elements of it that can repeat over and over and over again through history. And it's so much of it is often blaming a particular group, a minority group, for all of the problems of a country uh, and coming up with a, a, a grand theory that um, everything is the fault 
of these other people. It's not our fault. It's this other group's fault and creating an entire ideology around that and, and then acting on it. And once you can convince the public that all of their problems are the result of this other group, then uh, you know violence is always just a, one step away. And I think that's the thing that we see over and over again is, is the demonizing of, uh, of whether it's minority groups, whether it's religious groups, um, uh, and that becoming the basis of, uh, of a whole belief system uh, where in order to make one group uh, succeed, you have to make another group fail or you have to, you have to harm another group. And, and that's what leads to, uh, to these different iterations of, of you know, sort of Nazi-like groups, whether it's on the far right or, or anywhere. Um, uh, so much of it comes down to this basic hatred of one group for another and then justifying violence uh, uh, on political grounds. And then, you know, Brad, maybe you can articulate this better than I just did, but th that's the thread that, that, that I see continuing today that's so, that's so terrifying. No, I, I think that's right. And, and, you know, Josh and I, there's a, we were talking and we, it's a brilliant line that n Nazism and, and the Holocaust don't start with death camps. They start no. with, they start with slogans and with uh, propaganda and with rallies. And then you combine them exactly as Josh said, with a group of native born Germans in this case, who want to tell a narrative about those people. And anytime you hear those words, those people, right? In this case, of course, it's the Jews, or it could be the black community, the gay community, the immigrant community. But anytime you see someone blaming those people, um, the idea is that's when you're supposed to speak up. We didn't just write the Nazi conspiracy to entertain you or even inform you. We wrote it also to warn you that when you see someone talking like that, you're supposed to say something. You're supposed to use your voice. There's one of the most potent scenes in the book for me is this moment where uh, there's a Nazi rally. And we, and we love to kind of say, oh, the Nazis are gone. And that happened in Europe. That's not here. This Nazi rally and the Nazi conspiracy is in Madison Square Garden at the heart of New York City. 20,000 people show up. And there's big giant flags of George Washington with swastikas next to it. The, the first speaker says that uh, if George Washington knew Adolf Hitler, they'd be great friends. And, and we love to wring our hands and say that what Kanye West is doing is, you know, somehow it feels like it's something new and something weird to have a celebrity venomously poisoning, you know, the air like that. And then you forget that Henry Ford or Charles Lindbergh used their celebrity to do the same exact thing. And, and these stories, you know, they, they, they are familiar for a reason and, and they're not new. But if you don't use your voice, you're going to see more of them. So to me, that, that's the heart of the book. It, it, you know, when Josh and I start each book, we always know that we have like a, a you know, we, of course, there's a cool story in there. There's a plot to kill FDR and Churchill and Stalin. That's just cool. But oh, we, yeah. always, we always stop and say, what's the book really about? Our book about the plot to kill Abraham Lincoln, the first plot to kill Abraham Lincoln before he was elected, long before John Wilkes Booth, was a book that was about leadership in a time when the country's divided, because that's where we saw America at that moment when we were writing it. Um, the same thing with our George Washington book is like what great leaders really take. The leadership's not about being in charge. It's about taking care of those in your charge. And in this book, 
you know, we saw the rise of anti-Semitism. We had no way, we thought it was at its height when we started writing the book. We had no idea where it was going to be now that the book is, is out. So each time we're always looking at our own culture and, you know, history is not interesting just to know old stuff. It's interesting to know old stuff and have it inform your today. Absolutely. I mean, I, I do think we're at a, a point in this country um, where you've obviously you've just mentioned about people standing up and, and speaking and, and things like that and, and speaking out when they see something. And, and we're at a point in this country where, um, which I'm sure you guys are aware, we've gone through three prime ministers in the space of two months. Um, we had an absolute shit show of a year last year in this country from Boris Johnson to Liz Trust to the Queen dying to now Rishi Sunak, who no one ever sees or talks or hears anything about. He's sort of disappeared. No one knows anything about him really now. Um, and then when you do hear anything about them, they're talking about the immigration. Now, we've got a, a problem with immigration in this country. Um, I, so I've got a lot of friends in America and, and they talk about your border control Um we have a similar issue in, in this country, obviously people coming across the channel. Um, and there does seem to be this big thing going on in this country now of, well, the reason the gas prices are so high was to do with the immigrants. The reason this is going on is to do with the immigrants. Um, and I can see exactly what you're saying in there. There will be, there will come a point where I can see Britain sort of turning into that, that way and it's it's a scary it's a scary thought i do hope that there comes a point where we sort of learn to live with people rather than pick faults but uh, i mean i don't know what the situation is like in america i know little bits and pieces um but i know i know what's going on in this country and, and what you're saying there is it's a scary thought when you think about what we're what we're seeing here amen yeah. Um, quick question. And I found a quote um, and I, I want you to clarify. Did Hitler actually say make Germany great again? Uh, um, uh, he did. Yeah. It's in a, a translation of a speech that was printed in the newspaper. I don't have the information right in front of me at this moment, but um uh, that that quote was taken directly from a newspaper, from uh, American newspaper coverage of one of Hitler's speeches. Uh, so it was quite a direct quote and a direct translation from what he said. Scary I'm stuff. Hope, yeah, I'm going to hope that uh, your former president didn't look at that as a... Uh, a guideline for a speech. Um, I don't. Or, yeah, I don't think it's the guideline, but I think it, it shows you the appeal of when your country is doing poorly and some guy comes along and promises you, I got a way out and it's those people who are causing you harm and you're going to lose your way of life. Mm. Um, it just shows you what, uh, how tantalizing that is to a certain person. Yeah. And I mean, we got different media coverage over here to, to what you guys got. Um, I, I very, very rarely talk about politics on my show because it just causes so many issues. Um, I made a point a couple of years ago um, when I believe it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg died um, and I made a, a point about um, how I found Donald Trump 
um, and how he reacted to the news of a woman who absolutely despised him passing, I thought he dealt with that with quite a lot of respect. And I got a lot of sort of stick from Americans saying, you stay out of our politics. And so I, I tend not to, to give my opinion on politics, but I can, all I can say is I, I find America to be in a very similar situation to Britain at the moment. You know, if, if you went to the polls next week, to me, the, the position that you're in in America of choosing Biden or Trump, and we're in a position of choosing Keir Starmer or Rishi Sunak, it's like choosing which leg you'd rather be shot in. Um, then neither are good <laughs> candidates. Um, it's just not, I just find it very, the, the politics at the moment, I think just needs a whole overhaul. But the problem is, as we know through history, when politics needs an overhaul like that, it's normally these fringe parties, these, uh, the Nazis and the, um, communists and things like that that do end up getting into power because people are fed up with what's going on so it's quite no, right. it, it, yeah it is really scary but it takes the extreme to kind of scare people straight yeah i mean i know you had a bit of controversy um brad with with one of your books um uh, being banned in pennsylvania um and I, I make a, i always make this point on my show and like i said i don't know if you guys have listened but i always make the point um, and I, I, whether you can echo this with me, but you cannot change history. If you don't like it, it's tough. You can't change it. You can only learn from it. Yeah. And listen, and if you're banning books, you're on the wrong side of history. Absolutely. <laughs> That's just how it's going to end. I'll tell you every single time. I don't care what you pick. You're on the wrong side as you will eventually be revealed as the bad guy. You think you're the good guy, but you'll eventually be revealed as a bad because you're banning books. And if you're the person in the library pointing out books, that what people shouldn't need, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. You're absolutely. doing it wrong. Yeah. People have got to, you've got to read things. And I mean, we had um, a thing in this country, I believe you had it in America um, of people tearing down statues. Um, it was a massive thing in Britain. Um, they, they tore down a statue of, I couldn't tell you his name, but it, they, he lived in Bristol um, and they threw him into the sea, tore this statue down um, because he was part of the, the slave trade. But what people forget is, is the history behind that. And we know now from history, I mean, it should have known it 300 years ago, but slavery was one of the most abhorrent things that's happened in world history. But you can't erase it. You cannot get rid of it. Because if you get rid of it, it's likely to repeat itself. You have to look at it and go, we as humans made a mistake there. Why did we make a mistake? And we're not going to make this mistake in the future. Absolutely. So, I mean, are you working on anything now? Have you got, uh, got anything in the pipeline? I know this book, uh, is it this month it comes out? I'm, I'm assuming it's already out now. It's January. Uh, we are, I, I know they have us running to another interview soon, but, um, we are working on it. We we're well, we're telling our editor we're working on it right now. We're in the early stages of it, but, um, yes, well, we're deep in the knee deep in it, but yes, of course we're doing another book together. Oh, fantastic. Well, I look forward to that. And, uh, if you, if you want to come back on the show and, and talk about that one, I'd be more than happy to have you on because, um, it's been 
been fascinating. And and like I, I say to everybody who uh, who's listening to to go out and and download or, or download the audio book or go and purchase the book, um, where where is it available? You can buy it anywhere. Any you know at your local bookstore, of course on Amazon, your independent bookshop, Barnes Noble, or anywhere you buy books, they're going to have the book. So just ask for the Nazi conspiracy, uh, and, and you should be able to find it pretty quickly. Yeah, and you'll probably find that you finish it within a week, like I did, because it is one of those books that you you just can't put down. It's it's fantastic. And uh, for those of you who are into your history, and I would assume everybody here is, everybody listening should be into their history. Otherwise, you're definitely at the wrong show. Um, you, this will be fascinating to you. The, it opens your eyes to the the Second World War. Um, and totally opens your eyes to everything that uh, you guys have spoken about. And this conspiracy to kill the three most powerful men in history, uh, or at the time, definitely, it's just amazing. Absolutely amazing. And, and how you guys have uncovered it and brought the story around is, is fascinating. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us on. We really appreciate it. Anytime. Absolutely. Absolutely. Really appreciate it. And thanks for reading the book, man. Thank you. Bye-bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.